Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Candidates using Indeed assessments to make sure they have the experience your job needs. To start hiring, visit Indeed.com slash try today. Fast Talk. Street Talk. Talk Radio. Fighting the good fight with all his might. Providing a welcome dose of common sense for the common people. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio as we set out on another week of fighting the good fight, dispatching the shysters and uncovering the hypocrisy at the heart of our society because, ladies and gentlemen, that is what we do here at the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. If you think that sounds like a tall order... Just have a listen to this and consider what you're about to hear. We've got a Chancellor who says he did nothing wrong, but he's now referred himself to the ethics czar at Downing Street just to make sure. Meanwhile, Mrs Sunak has now decided that she's not a non-dom anymore and has scarpered out of Downing Street with the kids. Oh, and she's going to be paying more tax as well, even though she doesn't have to. That's nice, isn't it? I'd like to pay more tax even though I don't have to, except I haven't got a gazillion pounds in the bank to bankroll the government. Sorry about that. Uh, meanwhile, we've got a collection of over-educated, over-privileged and deranged demonstrators calling themselves rebels and blocking roads all over the place as the police stand idly by watching. Over the weekend, huge swathes of London were at a standstill as these eco-terrorists, for that is what they are, wailed that we're killing the planet and they're all going to die. Yeah, well, it can't come soon enough, as far as I'm concerned, to be able to get over Lambeth Bridge, at least. Funny that it only happens during the school holidays, isn't it? Speaking of which, apparently teachers are now threatening to quit because of, wait for it, the heavy workload. <laughs> the heavy workload of being a teacher. No laughing at the back. We'll be checking in with Catherine Burble-Singh, headmistress and education czar. Uh, can you actually believe these people? They get more holidays uh, than people who are unemployed, for heaven's sake. 0344 499 Peter Hitchens is here as well. He wrote this weekend about the failings uh, of the new no-fault divorce bill and the constant erosion of family values that's been going on over the decades. We'll also get his latest views on what's going on in Ukraine and possibly on Boris Johnson's trip over there. He might even have something to say about the French election too. Hamish de Breton Gordon for British Army Colonel will be telling us why he thinks it's time to do more militarily to back President Vladimir Zelensky with a no-fly zone. And don't forget, of course, we want to hear from you. 0344 499 1000. First up, though, we've got Ella Whelan, spike columnist and author of What Women Want on the perils of the political spouse. And just when Extinction Rebellion is actually going to be decolonised, it is without doubt, as Jon Snow would have said, one of the whitest organisations I think anybody has ever seen doesn't particularly bother me, I just find it interesting. And we'll hear about Home Office bureaucracy getting in the way of a one-man quest to bring his Ukrainian family back to Britain. 0344 499 You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest-growing radio station on the planet. Now, of course, also available on television, it's Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. 
Now, what was your weekend like? Because mine actually wasn't bad. The main reason it wasn't bad is because I wasn't here in London having to put up with people hanging off bridges, occupying bridges, you know, marching around, waving flags, pretending that they care about the planet, making out that we're all going to die unless we stop filling our cars with petrol. Some people were actually queuing up for petrol this weekend. I don't know why they'd be doing that. But let's talk to Ella Whelan, Spike columnist, author of What Women Want, Fun, Freedom uh, and Feminism. Uh, Is that right? Ella, a very good morning to you. Is it, it's an and an end to feminism. Oh, an end to feminism. I've got a dyslexic <laughs> producer who's written and twice, so I didn't want to <laughs> read okay. that in case it made me look stupid. But he's already done that. Uh, very good morning to you. Welcome to the show. Should we kick nice. off with uh, Rishi Sunak? Because knowing what you do as a woman, if you don't mind me calling you that, um, it's interesting that both Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak seem to have got themselves into a bit of trouble um, thanks to their uh, respective spouses. And I wondered about the perils this morning of political spousery, because there are some who think women and either husbands or wives of the prime minister or the chancellor should be off limits, but they're not really, are they? No, they're not. And I think there's been, I've been kind of um, dismayed by the Tories attempt to paint this fury as some kind of sexist campaign against um, Murty or, you know, that there was, and funny enough, there wasn't much of that going on when people were slagging off Carrie Johnson no. for the wallpaper scenario and the redoing the flat. But, you know, obviously in normal life for most people, what you do as a partner of someone, whether you're male or female, um, is, uh, you know, is completely separate. You're an independent person. Mm. That changes when you become a person who holds high public office, a politician, you know, with the most political power in this country, the prime minister or the chancellor. Um, then your private life is no longer private. I mean, yeah. that's why we have, I mean, that's why, partly why Sunak has now himself called for uh, an inquiry into all of this to prove that his private affairs are of a squeaky clean and of public interest. And so there, it's a pretty degrading form of, um, or pretty degrading abuse of feminism, really, to suggest that simply because uh, she's a woman she should be off limits yeah. now if she was if she had kind of spending habits of you know going to the salon or buying expensive cars or what, what who cares the question isn't about whether or not you know sunak wears expensive sliders or um how much money they've got swilling around in their bank accounts i think the more important or even actually the question of tax dodging which you know some people can get upset about and it's an important point it doesn't really get my knickers in a twist the thing that um I think will cut through with people is this suggestion that the Sunaks are this kind of uh, the, the greatest um, explanation or example of this kind of supranational globalist couple mm. where you don't really have, you know, wealth is sort of spread everywhere. You don't really have any stake in a particular nation. You know, the question of Rishi's green card, all of that kind of stuff, the kind of smacks of the, you know, it's a kind of classic global elite sort of thing, yeah. which I think um, whether it's you know the argument by people like David Goodhart about the somewheres and the anywheres or all of this discussion about sort of responsibility for um, being, you know, particularly being a politician, the head of a nation state. I think that's what will cut through with people rather than 
whether or not um, she gives us a bung of a few more quid here yeah. for some tax or anything like that. Yeah, because, I mean, the one thing that he has been spectacularly bad at is actually managing the whole situation. Because I, funnily enough, said at the beginning of last week that I was hearing, I don't know whether you heard the same things, that there was a uh, the cabal inside of Downing Street, led by Boris to a large extent, to totally and utterly discredit Rishi Sunak because he hasn't forgiven him. It's all a bit petty and schoolboy-like, school but hasn't forgiven him for being more popular than him during the sort of Partygate scandal doesn't want him ever to see power again ever again and he's probably going to fire him as chancellor but first he wants to humiliate him and so far so good well you know you never want to say never because westminster is a dirty place it really is and uh and you know we know that infighting goes on we know that in particular rishi sunak made some decisions around the time of partygate being released to not be anywhere near the stink that was coming out of number 10 spending time in other parts mm. of the country flouting himself as potentially a new leader yeah. and his um, i mean it's 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 also quite obvious that the way in which he's handled this thus far has been his primary concern is protecting his potential to run yeah. as leader. So, you know, let's not be under any sort of delusion that his call for an inquiry is because he thinks that there's, you know, that he wants to follow proper process. It's mm. about trying to covering his backside. Right. And um, I think more importantly, you know, you can get a bit like Partygate happened where everyone was sort of worrying about, who had a beer with who and what part of Downing Street and whether or not it did or did not contravene the rules. The bigger question there was whether or not COVID restrictions should have been applied to the, you know, to the public, should people, whether or not people should have been being arrested on park benches, yeah. not whether Boris Johnson was in the garden um, having a fag and a piss up at a time of lockdown. Yeah. And in the same way with um, this question about Rishi Sunak, I think I'd be more interested in talking about whether the Chancellor is putting in place the right policies for modern British economy mm. that is that is not just struggling, but is in its death throes, um, then what him and his wife get up to, I think we can kind of get distracted by the Westminster, not Westminster gossip, because as I said, it's important, but you know, this is, look, let's think about the bigger picture here, not mm. the person, but his politics, his politics and his policies. Yeah. And I think there is a genuine sense of fair play in most British people's minds and in their hearts and in their houses. You know, they don't mind somebody being wealthy, but they don't want them uh, having it sort of rubbed in their faces. You know, like I was reading at the weekend, that he's got this house up in Yorkshire somewhere, uh, which under other circumstances would not have been granted planning permission to put a bloody great swimming pool in. Uh, but he's managed to somehow get around those rules and get a swimming pool put in. So, to the chagrin of some people, some other people don't mind because he invites them around for dinner quite a lot. Similarly, nobody would care how many cars he's got, except he made out that he had a Kia and it was, was, was pictured famously putting fuel into it on the budget statement day. And you're kind of going, why do you do that for? You know, everybody knows you've got a Land Rover and a Range Rover and a BMW and a VW Golf. And nobody cares about that. But don't pretend that you haven't got all that. Yeah, no one wants, you know, it's not that we want our um, politicians and leaders to be walking around in donkey jackets, kind of like... Um, no, we don't want that either. You know, with, with, <laughs> but like, you know, you don't, it, it's, it's, this isn't a sort of, you're right, this isn't an identity thing. It's not that suddenly if we had lots of working class politicians in there with accents that automatically politics would get better in the same way that I think it's absolute nonsense when feminists argue that just, if you just had a few more women in parliament, if things would get better for women. Oh, yeah. 
that's not the case. But it is true that we have, um, you know, a, a political elite that come from a certain section of society, whether it be Rishi Sunak, Boris Johnson, any of those, Theresa May, Michael Gove, and that they have, uh, you know, and indeed in the Labour Party. And that leads to a certain amount of insulation from normal life, mm. which is why the, you know, for example, I found it rather sickening that Rishi Sunak continuously wants to be applauded for, you know, what happened throughout the pandemic, which, yes, the furlough scheme, all of that, great, you know, whatever necessary, um, you know, is to be commended for that. But the suggestion that the, the kind of painting that the, the Conservative Party have done such a huge thing for people recently, not recognising that actually furlough for most people was an 80% pay cut mm. and, do, and living on that for two years and then coming now into a time when energy, you know, cost of living is, um, you've covered this on your show many, many times, is excruciating yeah. for most people. It's just, you you kind of, it's not that you want to do a kind of rich house, poor house and make Rishi Sunak go and live in an estate for a week to see what it's like. But there is a problem with, um, with an elite not being just out of touch, but also not being willing mm. to listen to the needs of a country, which I think if you look at the current um, plans for the economy, the refusal to look at green taxes, the refusal to budge on any kind of um, you know, spending other than a bung to the NHS, mm. which we're all meant to be really satisfied with and clap for. Right. Um, I think that is the problem. Well, I think you're absolutely right. And particularly, again, with his kind of, you know, statement just before the, the, the budget that he put out, saying that he understands and, and knows what it's like for people who are currently struggling. Well, he simply doesn't know what it's like for people who are currently struggling. So why bother saying it? And the other question I would have, Ella, um, is why would somebody who is as wealthy as that, who uh, wants to have a house in Santa Monica, who wants to have, um, you know, his wife, who's one of the richest women in the world, uh, have dual citizenship with India and here, even though um, apparently that's allowed when they said it wasn't allowed. You know, why does he even want to be in politics? Because he's now getting dragged through the hedge backwards, as it were. It's all out of his control. It's all spiralling around him. His wife can't be too happy about it. You know, he doesn't need it, does he? <laughs> no. And I suppose if you're a cynic, you might say that this is shows how superficial so much of um, contemporary parliamentary politics is in that, particularly in relation to the economy, what we need is a large scale, long term plan of real change in terms of investment, in terms of ripping up the obsession with kind of net zero, mm. uh, you know, a complete political change of the political narrative and ideology, as well as practical measures in terms of, uh, you know, more support for people on benefits or more jobs or things like that. Mm. And that's not very, that's not an exciting or interesting proposal for individuals who see um, their role in politics as part of a larger career. So we know that lots of former politicians go on to have other jobs, whether it be, you know, Nick Clegg in Facebook or, you know, they do the rounds at uh, dinner parties, charging huge <laughs> eye-watering sums for making speeches. There's a kind of, I don't think you need to be a cynic to suggest that there's a lack of a sense of public service in, in the role of politics, that actually it's about, you don't, you don't have to get all kind of... Um, um, ideologically left wing like me to say that there's a there's a need for some certain kind of vision which expands beyond the short term of um, kind of election cycles mm. or indeed someone's role as prime minister. Right. Uh, but the you know, the, I think the more the more important point is to ask the question of, yes, all these individuals come and go. And, you know, we know that in particular personality plays something still of a role in politics, whether it be in relation to Boris Johnson or other um, leaders across the world. But 
what unites both the Conservative Party and the Labour Party um, in over the last 20 years has been a lack of political vision, has been a lack of openness to change. We've just had a sliding door of people who have largely, you know, have really done nothing different or exciting for the vast majority of people in this country. You know, our lives haven't ch changed. Mm. And if they've changed, they've changed for the worse. So I think that really is yeah. the bigger picture. Yeah. And just back on the feminist front, what is the difference between Carrie um, and Mrs Sunak? Because I wonder if it's a rather prurient one, which is that people will be more critical of Carrie Johnson because she's younger, uh, she's not his first wife, she's seen as this kind of, you know, Jezebel figure, because I think people still in this society in which we live are that old fashioned. I don't know about that. I mean, I'm I'm certainly all for, uh, you know, I, I've got no traditional, I don't hold on to any traditional views of um, women or their role. And I'd have no time for anyone slagging off Carrie because she um, is his second or however many wives he's no. had, you know, whatever it is. No, I don't think you should. Um, but, but the important thing about her to criticise is that it, it at times was quite clear, or at least looked like she was becoming more involved in the in having a say over the mm. democratic process of politics than someone who's under who's not elected should be allowed. So yeah. much like the issue of someone like Dominic Cummings, Carrie Johnson was being a loud voice in the prime minister's ear at a time when the prime minister seemed to be listening to the last person who spoke in his ear. And that's when it becomes a problem, not, you know, whether or not she houses the dog in a fancy kind of kennel or what amount of wallpaper they put on the walls mm. and all of that kind of stuff. But what is her role in politics? And when we saw that her, you know, her, when her particular political um, fancies, whether it be her, interest in animals which we saw play out in relation to afghanistan whether it be her uh, you know her interest in environmentalism all of these things started becoming apparent in the way in which um, number 10 dealt with policy and that's when you have that's why i think the kind of carrie antoinette um nickname came about yeah. rather than a sort one. of sexism yeah. and it is one of the great nicknames but listen stay with us Ella, if you would because i want to talk to you about extinction rebellion and how impossibly white they all seem to be um not that i'm uh, advocating for some kind of you know mixed race extinction rebellion um sort of arm all i'm saying is is that these are the same people who tell us that we should decolonize university uh, curriculum but they don't want to decolonize their own organization a bit weird uh, ella winner from spikes uh, is talking to us we'll be taking your calls as well 0344 499 1000 this is talk radio. talk radio powered by common sense activated by opinion bristling with debate first fast freedom of opinion unbelievably realistic all because the nation loves talk radio Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. Peter Hitchens coming up from 11 o'clock, of course. He's got plenty to say uh, about the state of modern society, including a piece he wrote this weekend uh, about the state of marriage uh, and how unimportant it has now become uh, in modern Britain. We shall talk now, though, to Ella Whelan, Spike columnist and author of What Women Want, Fun, Freedom and an End to Feminism. Uh, I finally got the title right. Ella, thanks for staying with us. Let's talk a bit about Extinction Rebellion, because I don't know if you were in London over the weekend, but they were wreaking havoc as usual. Um, they're becoming more and more cult-like, it seems to me. And looking at some of the videos and some of the interviews that were being done, uh, they seem to be populated largely by um, students, school kids and members of the public sector. I'm sure there will be other people who say, oh, it's not just them, but there were people from the NHS uh, who were there. There was a doctor's group. There were teachers all over the place. There were clearly students because and quite young people as well. But it's an incredibly white organisation. And considering what they represent and what they kind of want, 
you would expect it to be a little bit more diverse, wouldn't you? Well, perhaps. I mean, I don't, I, it doesn't concern me too much, the identity makeup of the group, because I think the cult-like um, description that you've given is better it, it described by the fact that the organization Extinction Rebellion and indeed its offshoots like Stop Oil or Insulate Britain or all of these kind of people we've seen gluing themselves to things over the last few years. Um, the way the reason why they have become or, or always were cult-like is because at the focus of their political ideology is a refusal of debate. Mm. So we hear from them that there is, you know, this is not a discussion. This is not a debate. We must act now that if you don't don your best papier-mâché costume and join them in Trafalgar Square and trying to bring the country to a standstill, that you are the problem. And I think that's what puts off most people rather than the fact that, yes, they do. They, yeah, if you're going to be um, sort of focusing on the identity makeup, it does tend to be uh, white middle-class retired or or school kids yeah. kind of makeup. The it's I think I'd more focus on the fact that it yeah. is quite no, a listen, painfully middle-class movement. It was, it was, I mean, it's not something I, I've thought about much before, but I was just because I, my eyes were sort of scanning across Lambeth Bridge and Vauxhall Bridge as they blocked both of them and stopped people from going anywhere um it seems it, it just suddenly struck me that you know these are the kinds of people you would expect to be standing up in university lectures demanding to decolonize jane austen and making sure that you know mathematics was taught in a different way like they're trying to do in durham and yet in their own organization which is quite influential in terms of young people they don't seem to care well, I mean, it shows the ridiculousness of having an identity fo politics focus. Uh, in one of the introductions a while ago, you mentioned um, that infamous line from Jon Snow about how um, white the crowds were. At, I think if I remember right, it was at a, a Brexit rally. It was. Um, and a, a, a Brexit protest. And obviously, you know, most people know that if you stood in and around Parliament Square at any other time that the um, pro-EU rallies were going on, it was uh, equally a very white movement. And uh, the, kind of the question is, who cares? Why is why is it a problem? Why was it a problem for Jon Snow when it was not just a white, but obviously a white working class yeah. movement in relation to um, that? And I was on some of them, you know, in the celebration of the Brexit victory, but also in campaigns around um, trying to make sure it happened mm. when we were back doing that. Um, but there's no, but that kind of weaponization of skin color um, or identity on in that doesn't happen in other cases. And, you know, there is a, there is diversity is in some cases and in some places an important thing, you know, it's not to poo poo that we know, you know, in relation to discussions about racism or things like that, skin color becomes something that you should talk about but in the vast majority of areas of life we should be aiming to get to a place in which it isn't relevant i thought that yeah. was the opposite of um racism is is making sure that this is not something that anyone is judged by whether they're in extinction rebellion mm. or on a brexit rally but that's right and more important to me actually than any of that is the working class aspect versus middle class aspect of this whole thing as well because whenever you see um, opposition to Extinction Rebellion. It's people driving vans trying to get to work. It's people pulling Extinction Rebellion protesters off tube trains because they're trying to get to work. You know, it's working class people who can't work from home, who don't have an Apple Mac, who can't have a laptop in the garden and sit there quite happily during a COVID pandemic. These are people who actually need to get to work and who are being stopped from getting to work by a bunch of middle class so-called rebels um, who are, you know, looked after very nicely, thank you, by mummy and daddy. 
Well, I can't tell you how many times um, my husband, who's a tree surgeon, has come home from work and told me that he's done a job um, for someone who has Extinction Rebellion um, posters up in their wall or is a pro low traffic neighborhood supporter. And it just, you know, it's it kind of completely is mind boggling. The fact that these people want to have workers um, come and do the stuff for them. You know, the white van man is very important to protect when he's, you know, changing the cistern in your toilet or cutting down your magnolia tree in your lovely garden. But God forbid he should move around London comfortably or be, you know, not be fined for moving around. So there is a real class distinction in all of this, I think. Yeah, no, totally. And that will, in the end, I think, be their downfall because I was seeing for the first time this weekend an awful lot of um, what I would say kind of not particularly aggressive but very anti-Extinction Rebellion um, social media activity. You know, they're not the darlings of, uh, of everybody any longer because they've been doing this for too long. You know, it's one thing to say, oh, we're raising awareness. Well, I don't think you really need to raise awareness anymore. I don't think anybody uh, in this country is not aware that there is a climate change issue which some people think is an emergency and other people don't. But I don't think it would be right to say we must raise awareness. And, of course, now it's moved slightly. Now they're saying they want the government to immediately stop investing in oil. And that's just not practicable. Everybody knows that there is a discussion to be had about climate change and the environment, and most people are up for that discussion. So, you know, most people aren't kind of hoofing on their exhaust pipes, you know, kind of coal sucking idiot saying there's nothing you know nothing should be changed in the world everything's fine most people are not like that but what most people oppose is the idea that there should be um that we should sacrifice our quality of life for um for this sort of deluded idea of net zero so the fact that you had stop oil protesters locking themselves in tankards or in tunnels wherever they were in the same week that we were hearing the effects of the cost of living crisis, and in particular in relation to energy prices, mm. partly related to what's going on in Ukraine with Russia's invasion, and partly because of the failures of our own energy policy throughout the last 20 years of this of uh, this government and longer. And you just think, how out of touch can you be? Because the central message is not let's create a better world in which people live nicer lives. And, and you know, as a bonus, the planet is saved for future generations because I care about my future kids and future sure. grandkids. But the fact that you have to have less, be more miserable, not heat your home, not eat what you want, not travel. I mean, this is one of the craziest things. We just been talking about, you know, Rishi Sunak and the elite to this sort of like, global the idea of the best thing to be is is kind of global and beyond borders you know mm. which i agree with people should travel people should see the world open your minds but not not that only a certain type of people not most people not working class people who might want to go to marbella yeah. you know they they're not allowed to enjoy the luxuries of modern world and i think that kind of dystopian treatment of um, what it is to be human and what it is to live a good life just is never going to ring true of people, thankfully. No, no I think that's absolutely right. Ella, um, some great common sense there. Thank you very much indeed. Ella Whelan, uh, Spike Collins, author of What Women Want, Fun, Freedom and an End to Feminism. I forgot to ask her that one question. What do women want? What is it? Accept no substitutes. Listen online. Watch it live on your smart TV. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Peter Hitchens will be joining us coming up just after the news at 11 o'clock. He's got plenty to say about the happenings uh, over the weekend in Ukraine, I'm sure. Also, uh, on the treatment and the diplomatic 
activity that's going on behind the scenes. Also, he's going to talk about marriage and the no-fault uh, divorce bill that was passed the other day uh, in the Houses of Parliament because he's not at all in favour of the way things are going uh, in terms of family life in this country. Right now, though, let's talk to Hamish de Breton Gordon, former Army Colonel uh, and chemical weapons expert, of course, as well. He wrote a letter to the Telegraph uh, over the weekend in which he called for a no-fly zone to be instituted uh, because, in his words, winning becomes a habit and we've got to make sure that Ukraine continues to win against Russia. Hamish, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Uh, you've, to- you've posted a couple of things this morning already uh, look quite concerning about the possible use of, uh, of chemical weapons. What can you tell us? Well, I think the Minister of Defence intelligence update this morning talks about possibility of the use of uh, white phosphorus in Mariupol mm. um, by the Russians. Uh, I, I'm obviously not privy to the intelligence behind that, but the Minister of Defence daily briefings seem to be pretty much on the money at the moment. And we've seen with Mariupol, uh, very, very fierce fighting has been going on. The Ukrainian military and the people that are holding out, there are about just over 100,000 trapped. And if the Syrian playbook is used by the Russians, which they appear to be using, one of the ways that um, the Syrians and the Russians uh, overcame staunch resistance like Mariupol was to use white phosphorus, which mm. is an incendiary weapon, which basically sets fire to the city and uh, you know chases people out like vermin, as yeah. it were. So that is a really worrying uh, development, and it must be absolutely horrendous for those civilians who yeah. have been attacked in Mariupol and other cities at the moment across Ukraine. And that was what they used in Syria. Absolutely. That was it was a sort of medieval scorched earth policy Mm. that uh, the Assad regime set fire to towns and villages and really drove people up into the northwest, into Idlib and and horrendous, you know, very effective. Unfortunately, white phosphorus is is allowed to be used by the militaries for illumination at night or a smoke screen. Right. But to use it to set fire to towns and villages and kill civilians is a war crime. Yeah, absolutely. And as far as the way the Russians have kind of carried out and executed this uh, this movement of troops and this war, if you like, um, a lot of people saying at the weekend that they haven't pulled out of anywhere, really. They're simply regrouping. Would you share that view? Well, I, I, I think that in a, in a way they have been defeated uh, in the north, as mm. I say in my letter in The Telegraph. And uh, we should reinforce that. The Ukrainian military and the people have done a fantastic job. Um, it is clear that civilians are being directly targeted because, uh, as in Syria, uh, the aggressor is trying to break the will of the population to survive. And, and the population are absolutely key to this. Um, if, if Putin cannot uh, subjugate this population, then he is not going to take Ukraine. And it looks very much like, at the moment, they're going backwards and at last the Ukraine is on the front foot. And that was really the theme of my piece is um, let's help them get on the front foot. What we really want is peace as soon as possible yeah. um, to prevent any more civilian deaths. And no. we're doing very, we're doing a great, I've spoke to many Ukrainian politicians over the last few weeks who are very thankful for the British effort and for Boris Johnson to go to Kiev over the weekend. That was a great sign, but we must back it up with, yeah. with, weaponry that which they can use so they can hold back the russians and we can sue for a peace so that they can rebuild this devastated country as soon as possible yeah i mean i've, I've always been um slightly dubious of those who say oh well we can't really get involved any more than we are because that would cause a nuclear war i mean it seems to me there must be something in between what we do now 
and a nuclear war response, if you know what I mean. Well, I, I agree, Mike, and uh, I agree with Tobias Elwood, who over the weekend has been saying that, you know, we, we need to we, we need to get back on the front foot. Um, Putin is is the arch poker dealer and he is calling all the shots. Mm. Yeah, I, I agree with Tobias Elwood that I don't think the Russians are about to press the red button, nuclear button, but they are using all means at their availability to try and defeat Ukraine. And uh, I think they've been surprised. They've been undone. They have um, performed very badly. The next battle for Donbass is going to be different. And this is why I think we need to enable, support the Ukraine Air Force to, to rule the skies, because we're going to see hordes of tanks steaming across the open areas of Donbass. And it's not going to be like in Kiev, where they could, where determined men and women with anti-tank weapons can hide behind buildings and take these tanks out. What, what is needed is going to be aircraft um, the Americans are deploying the switchblade drone, which is an amazing um, uh, autonomous air vehicle that will take these tanks out. But, you know, there is a real quality and quantity in this sort of thing. Mm. And, um, you know, if, if we can't enable the Ukrainians to hold back these Russian hordes of tanks, then they will go a long way to taking, you know, the eastern Ukraine. And uh, it'll be even more difficult for us to sue, sue for peace if the Russians gain the initiative again. Mm. And I've spoken to some um, analysts, uh, Hamish, who say that the thing about a no-fly zone is it might hurt Ukraine as well, because obviously that would mean they couldn't have those drones up, they couldn't have planes up um, taking tanks out, or even of their own. And what, what do you think about that? Well, I, maybe, maybe our, we're talking about semantics here. When I say for an enable a no-fly zone, it's to enable the Ukraine Air Force to have air superiority. Mm. It's to prevent Russian aircraft attacking civilians, attacking hospitals and schools, which seems to be their main targets, not uh, Ukraine military. So it would, if the Ukraine Air Force has air superiority, and the Russians have been unable to do that for some reason, which I just don't understand, they would still have their own aircraft and their own drones in the air to protect civilians, because that's really what this is all about. Mm. We know the Russians are directly targeting civilians, hospitals and schools. Uh, there's a lot of intelligence coming out about that. The MOD's daily update is saying that. And these are war crimes. You know, can we really stand by and do nothing while women yeah. and children are murdered for the only reason that they happen to be Ukrainian? Yeah. Absolutely right. And many people are now asking that very question, aren't they? You know, how much more is he going to be allowed to do? Entirely. And I think by by enabling them, as we've done, uh, I believe they've defeated the Russians in the north who pulled out. And thank God they've also pulled out of Chernobyl and some of the other sites that they've taken, um, that uh, we can get the Ukrainian people back on the front foot again. We don't want any more fighting. Let's, what we really need is peace. Yeah. But uh, Putin has shown that, you know, he, he is a tyrant um, and uh, he, he does not seem to be able to uh, contemplate uh, peace at the moment. And um, we need to, from a position of strength, bring him to the negotiation table so that we can stop the fighting. That is the key thing. And I think if the people in I'm sure 99% of the Russian people have morals and scruples. And if they knew what was going on in their name, these war crimes, they would get rid of him themselves. Mm. 
Yes, that seems to be a difficulty as well at the moment. Hamish, thank you very much indeed uh, for talking to us. Hamish de Breton Gordon there, uh, former British Army colonel, uh, with his view on how things should not be allowed to escalate further and that Putin and the Russian army should not be allowed uh, to murder innocent civilians any longer. Something will have to be done. We'll take your calls on that as well. 0344 499 1000. Coming up, Peter Hitchens after the news at 11. Coming next, though, an update on our ailing NHS. Edgy talk. Plain talk. Unrivaled talk. Talk radio. The only radio show you can count on for a proper serving of good old-fashioned common sense. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on talk radio. Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio, the home of common sense, the place you hear the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Uh, we are entering the start of another week, of course, uh, where we will fight the good fight, we will dispatch the shysters and we will uncover the hypocrisy at the heart of our society. And you think that's tough? Uh, just watch what we do over the course of the next five days. Peter Hitchens is with us in this hour. We're going to talk about family values. Remember that phrase? Something that you don't really hear much anymore uh, in the uh, media. You don't really see people talking about it very much anymore. We get told uh, there's all manner of different ways to have a family. There's all manner of different people that you can be hooked up with. Um, we've got the no-fault divorce rules that came in last week. Peter wants to talk about that. He wrote about it at the weekend. Uh, he's always had a pretty staunch view uh, of what many people would regard as traditional families. Uh, we'll talk to him about that. We'll also talk about the latest news from Ukraine. And, of course, uh, we may touch upon the business uh, of Rishi Sunak, a man who has done apparently nothing wrong uh, but has now referred himself to the ethics of Tsar in Downing Street. I mean, only in the world of politics could you refer yourself to somebody to find out whether you did anything wrong. I mean, it's just sort of like Alice in Wonderland, isn't it? I mean, either you've done something wrong or you haven't. You don't need somebody else to tell you whether you've done something wrong, do you? Maybe we should have that system in all areas of life, you know. Turn up late at home, say to your wife, I don't know whether I've done anything wrong or not. I think what I'll do is refer myself uh, to a third party who can decide whether or not, while I was out, I did anything I shouldn't have done. I'm sorry it's four o'clock in the morning, but you know, that's the way it goes. Ridiculous, isn't it? Meanwhile, Extinction Rebellion needs to be decolonised because there's far too many white people in it, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, it needs to be much more diverse. I don't know what's wrong with these people. Why do they live in this age of empire? Why do they think they know better than everybody else just because they're white and middle class? Shocking and educated. I mean, obviously educated by idiots, by the way. 0344 499 1000 uh, is the number. We've got much more to talk about, of course, as well. Um, and we'll be talking to Jacob Reynolds, a man who's been trying to get his Ukrainian family, he's married to a Ukrainian woman, trying to get her family out of Ukraine, stymied by home office bureaucracy. There's a funny thing. Because, of course, nobody's working at the civil service anymore. They all work from home. 0344 499 1000 is the number. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course... Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Time to say a very good morning to Mr Peter Hitchens, Man on Sunday columnist, of course, and a man who stands alone in many areas uh, because he's never changed his view um, on many things. I mean, I'd be wrong to say you've never changed your view at all, but, I mean, of recent times you haven't changed your view on much, have you? Well, no. I ch when the facts change, I change my mind. Uh, but what I try not to do is change my mind to join a crowd. Mm. Or because I'm afraid of a crowd, yeah. And because I, that I was brought up not to do that, and it, it's it, oddly enough, I thought everybody else would be brought up in the same <laughs> way. I, I find that they haven't been. People no. in, enjoy being in crowds, and they also enjoy uh, shouting. 
at other people for disagreeing with them. If they reintroduce the two-minute state as they reintroduce introduce the actual two-minute state, which you may... A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Remember, as a feature of George Orwell's 1984, where everyone in the office assembles around a screen and shouts, hate, hate, hate at a selected target, I would be available, uh, it seems to me, as a a regular target for many of these uh, things, because actually not agreeing with the consensus has now become a very wicked thing to do. Oh, that's right. Well, the Extinction Rebellion crowd sort of very nicely sums this up, because they actually are quite happy to say there is no debate any longer, because there is simply no reason to disagree with them. That's right. They've said that for some time, mm. and there's not, there, are, there are a number of other areas in which there is effectively, but which the debate is over. And those of us who d- don't agree with the new, the new consensus are more or less politically dead. And I often think that, that our opponents wish us to be physically dead as mm. well. Unfortunately, they haven't got power to impose that on us yet. But it, it, they, they are. It is extraordinarily cultish. It really is. Uh, it's, 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 it is very like those, those, those cults into which teenagers disappear and then perhaps reappear 20 years later with mm. their money and, and, and lost lives, wondering what happened to them. Uh, but this sort of totally certain belief is disturbing to me. It really is, unfortunately, kind of similar to, to... And when you see them talking as well, it's very similar in the way that even somehow the, the, the way that they speak about it um, in this kind of slightly halting language, a slightly dramatic uh, overplaying of events which haven't yet happened. Well, there's been, it's been long in our society there's been a yearning for something to replace religion, which most people don't adhere to anymore, and I still do, so this, this doesn't trouble me. But you see, it's, it's a real desire. Even Karl Marx recognised that the, the, the religion was the, the, the sigh of the oppressed creature and the heart of the heartless world. People want to believe in something. They really do want to believe in something that they that they think is good, and this is part of it. It is it is it has many of the characteristics 
of a religion. Except in this case, they tend to sacrifice other people rather than themselves. (laughs) Yes, they rather do. Let's talk about uh, the uh, raising of some of these children, because I think I blame the education system for an awful lot of what they believe uh, and an awful lot of how they've been taken in by this climate nonsense. But also, uh, you wrote this weekend about the no-fault divorce uh, rules that came in last week. Um, Talk to us about the um, erosion, I suppose, if you like, of of the family unit. Well, this has been going on for a very long time. When I wrote my first book, The Abolition of Britain, back in the end of the 1990s, I devoted a chapter to the fact that the, the marriage was rapidly becoming a dead letter that it didn't really matter anymore. Mm. Uh, and I quoted a, a, a prominent a judge called Brenda Hoggett, as I think she was then, uh, pointing out that it really didn't have any uh, any realistic purpose in law anymore. Uh, she's since became the... the, the the Chief Justice Supreme Court as Brenda Hale, Lady Hale. Mm. And I think her idea is very influential. But what the law was doing was reflecting what politicians had done and what the culture had decided, which was that the the promise by two people to stay married to each other for life was not to be respected anymore. Uh, In fact, was a burden from which they should be released. And of course, it's perfectly true that released from marriages in which they're unhappy, adults often feel a great sense of relief. I, I remember the horrible song by Engelbert Humperdinck, Please Release Me, outsold, <laughs> so the, outsold the Beatles records by millions, constantly being played on the radio in the 60s, the, the great anthem to divorce, which came roughly at the time that the Labour government in 1968 uh, loosened the divorce laws into this strange position they, they, they got into then, where divorce was, was easy mm. uh, by comparison with before and cheap by comparison with before, and, and, and millions of people did it. The great losers in all this were the children. Now, people will constantly say, oh, well, I, my parents were divorced and it was wonderful. Or, 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 or people will say, well, do you want children to, to be stuck in a house where the parents are constantly rowing? Well, of course, no, I don't. Uh, no doubt there are divorces where the children have come out of it happily. Uh, but my experience of other, other people's accounts of this is very much they, that, that it's deeply wounding to mm. children when their parents split up. And in many cases, this is the worst thing. And the parents find this. The children blame themselves. Uh, the horrible way to start out in life. I think it's done immense damage. But on top of that, once divorce becomes common, uh, marriage itself begins to, to matter less. And I think huge numbers of children are brought up in in homes where there is there is no uh, no permanent arrangement of adults at all, mm. uh, the, the, the men come and go in many cases, and it, it, it's it's not a recipe for happiness or stability. And all the statistics, again, however many times people can come up with doubtless instances where single mothers have very successfully brought up children, statistically, there's no doubt that where this happens, the children are, are, are worse off in their future lives. And we have this extraordinary, Claire Fergus has written this extraordinary piece in the Times this morning about children's homes, where many of the, the children end up whose, whose families have fallen to pieces. And it's, it's a complete national disgrace and tragedy. And I'm very glad people are finally beginning to look into it. Mm. They're not. And we go on, people go on and on about children being abused by the church, uh, which is no doubt the case. But uh, a lot of children, I think, face abuse at the hands of state institutions as well. And, and it's it's it has to be to a great extent because the, the married family has ceased to exist. Mm. And this, the other thing, the implications for this for, for liberty are important. It's in the family, in the home, in private life, where people learn uh, an awful lot of things: the traditions of their family, they learn religious belief, they learn the history of their country, they learn a whole set of attitudes. If there's if the family isn't there. 
that all those attitudes are actually inculcated in them either by the state or by commerce and advertising. And you get an amazingly conformist population and many fewer individuals where people are brought up under constant pressure from the bombarded propaganda. You don't, it's very hard to get into modern state schools, particularly unannounced. Mm. But I get letters from people saying that their children have undergone or been subjected to all kinds of forms of indoctrination mm. in school. And I don't think anybody really seriously doubts that it goes on. And so how are you going to develop robust individuals who know how to stand up for themselves and can hold on to an opinion when the crowd is shutting them down. Yes. Under those circumstances. Well, it can only be done, as in my own personal experience, with, 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 with parenting in the end, because I can tell you for sure, having got two children through recently um, the state school system, one of whom is still in it, um, you know, I'm told by them, the only time there's an assembly, when I went to, I went to a Catholic grammar school, so our assembly was every morning at nine yep. o'clock, where we um, made some kind of oath to something or other and probably said a prayer or something like that. But it was there every day. The only time they do it now, and it's not a religiously based school, um, is to talk about climate change or gender. Those are the only two subjects they want to talk about. Yeah, I think that's, I find this entirely believable. Although we lost some other things as well, in which the, the only one view of, of, of life will be put forward because the, the Cultural Revolution has, of course, engulfed teachers probably more than any other group in society. Uh, and, and there it is. But it, without without the, uh, the, the existence of strong families to counter this, you do end up with a society in which everybody thinks the same thing. Mm. Uh, which is unhealthy for, for, from any point of view. It's, it's, it's vital. And John Stuart Mill, the great apostle of liberty, said you had to have uh, o opposition and dissent in society, uh, if only for the health of the, of the majority. So at least they were able to test their ideas against opposition. Without it, it, it just descends into a, into a silent world mm. of total conformism in which nothing much is ever discussed or discovered. Yeah. Do you think it's a class thing as well, though, Peter, where you've got... I mean, there are certain middle-class households which have become so kind of woke that the parents are encouraging the children to be ever more woke. Meanwhile, in working-class families, you know, there's a, there's a much higher level, I think, of uh, single-parent families. I don't know. I think that's a different issue. I think certainly education became a class issue when, the, when most of the grammar schools were demolished. Uh, and it was almost impossible for a person who came from a, from a poor family to get a good state education, let alone a private one. Uh, and that certainly made a huge difference to education. But I, I don't think in, in this case it's a class issue. I mean, after all, the, the English middle classes are, are, are probably uh, more left-wing than they've ever been uh, in, as, as a result, again, of the, of the Cultural Revolution. And the other influences of, of broadcasting, the huge predominance of the BBC, which which is, we now know that Hugh Carlton Green, its director general in the 1960s, deliberately set out uh, to turn into a, into a liberal propaganda organization very successfully. And, and poor old Mary Whitehouse tried to oppose this uh, with enormous skill, I have to say, and some courage and was steamrolled and, and totally defeated. Even though now people who derided her at the time are now prepared to admit that a lot of what she mm. said contains some sense. Yes, no, it's been quite a remarkable sort of period of time that you and I have been in the media, for want of a better phrase. Yeah. Um, I find quite a lot of what we used to do. I mean, when you and I were both on the Daily Express back in the 90s, it was a very different sort of landscape, wasn't it? Well, it was. And the fascinating thing is this, that if you look at the supposedly right-wing newspapers of Fleet Street, many of the things that they used to deride what what were called loony left councils mm. and Ken Livingston for saying and doing are now the policies of those newspapers. 
Yes, that's right. Uh, this never admitted or, or, or discussed, but the fact is that the, 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 they have they have quietly adopted them. Ken Livingston is probably the most successful politician in modern Britain, although as a person he's been shoved to the sidelines and is now largely forgotten. But in terms of changing the way in which people think and talk about cultural and social and moral issues, he's fantastically successful. Mm. And well, he can certainly claim, I think, to have beaten the Daily Express at that game. Yeah, I think so. Let's talk about Ukraine. Boris Johnson made a little flying visit to see President Zelensky. Um, what did you make of that? Well, I, I think it was a, a perfectly reasonable thing for him to do. As I say, I, no one can no one can criticise Volodymyr Zelensky for standing up for his country. And uh, no one can criticise anyone for going in and supporting him in that. And so, so why not? I'm much more worried about the way in which the the Western countries are feeding more and more armaments uh, into Ukraine. When I, it, it seems to me a more sensible approach would be trying to get a peace deal. Uh, it's the, the, the simple thing: when you see a fire uh, in, in a neighbor's house, do you pour water on it or do you pour petrol on it? I'm particularly worried about this development where, where we, we have obviously been sending javelin anti-tank weapons and similar small handheld uh, equipment to the Ukrainians. Uh, and this, of course, can, can be, uh, you, you, you could do it in a, in a completely un, unnoticeable way, in an ordinary van. But we're now talking about things such as anti-ship missiles and, and, and armoured vehicles, which can't be slipped into a country. And this raises the question of, of how far the Russians are going to sit and wait around uh, if we start sending such weapons into Ukraine, uh, which could possibly, it seems to be, widen the war. Also, an anti-ship missile is a serious thing. As those of us who remember the Falklands War and the use of exocet missiles against against British warships will recall, these are devastating weapons which which kill many people and do fantastically spectacular damage. Uh, is is Russia going to regard the supply of these weapons as a neutral act? Uh, if, I can't see the, how they would. One of their warships is, is sunk by a British missile. What would be the diplomatic yeah. consequences of that? But I suppose it's a bit of a game of cat and mouse, though, isn't it? Because you've got the West on the one hand saying, well, we can't go too far uh, into the military aspects of helping Ukraine because therefore that would trigger a nuclear war. Um, Meanwhile, Vladimir Putin doesn't um, sort of change his view of what he's doing. He continues um, shelling various places uh, around the country. So it's almost as though they're sort of seeing how far they can get, almost. And now we hear that Finland wants to join NATO, Sweden possibly coming next. Yes, it's interesting. I saw that and I thought, well, if this happens and you get a complete uh, a complete wall of NATO countries all along the Russian border, uh, I always think of the law of unintended consequences. What do you get out of this that you might not have intended to do? Mm. And what it seems to me to be the, the possibly the, the beginning of is a complete change in the, where the line of of division runs in Europe and Asia, and that, that, that Russia will increasingly fall into the arms of the Chinese, uh, the, the Chinese dictatorship and secret police state, which is, it seems to be increasingly very little different. Uh, and we will have what is effectively a Chinese-Russian presence all the way up to the Finnish uh, and Norwegian borders, yeah. uh, and, and indeed running through whatever, whatever eventually the line of control is settled to be in Ukraine. Uh, and was that what we wanted to achieve? Basically, we will have a new Iron Curtain yeah. with the, with the, with a, a, a more or less Chinese-controlled Russia, because I think Russia is, is so much weaker than China that if, if they do fall into each other's arms, it's no doubt who the senior partner will right. be, uh, actually on the borders of Europe. And I, if, in it's fact... Fascinating possibility, and 
and one which we, we need to think about. This is, is this the sort of world we now want? And mm. the, the other thing is a, a, a total, uh, there will be a token diplomatic represent, representation, perhaps, of Western countries in Moscow and vice versa. But we'll really be almost cut off from them as we are from Iran. Yes. Uh, well, I was going to say, it does feel... It's not necessarily a sensible arrangement with the potential. Yeah, I mean, it does really do, do does feel like a different sort of set of... Um, you know, global initiatives, doesn't it? It does seem as though that's the way it's heading. It's another world, and one which 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 may not be better than the one that we had before all this started. Mm. I mean, I'm not sure that uh, Marine Le Pen is going to beat uh, Emmanuel Macron. In fact, I don't think she is. But if she were to, uh, there's talk this morning from various points east of here um, that she has had in the past a pretty good relationship with Vladimir Putin. She's not very keen on NATO, and that would really set the cat amongst the pigeons, wouldn't it? Well. Yes, but notice that, uh, that Emmanuel Macron, who's more, much more likely, I agree, to win than Marine Le Pen, has also had a, 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 a rather closer relationship with Putin than most of, yeah. the, of the European leaders, and has also at one stage referred to NATO as brain dead. Uh, he's, uh, it, uh, French policy in this is um, it's not as original as it was under de Gaulle, but it's certainly different from ours. Mm. Um, the, the French have an interest. They, they were the allies of Russia, remember, in 1914. And, and these things stick in the mind. Uh, the French have an interest in, in keeping open some sort of relationship with Russia, as, of course, do the Germans, whereas the United States has no such interest at all. And there is a growing uh, conflict between the major European nations and the United States on how we should proceed in this matter. And I keep drawing attention. Uh, to, to Fraser Nelson's fascinating article in, in the Daily Telegraph, yeah. April 1st, in which he quotes authoritatively, because he knows, he's very well informed, uh, people saying that what may, what the the West, in terms of America, may well want in Ukraine is a long war uh, in which Russia is bled dry and, and, and Ukraine continues to suffer for a very long yeah. time. My, my view of this is this is horrible invasion. This, driving people from their homes and killing people, that the thing to do is to bring it to an end, yeah. to end the cruelty and misery. In it. But the, it's it's extraordinary, as I, I keep saying, that there is no serious effort uh, to obtain a peace deal. No, isn't what being but made. that's I've why, Fraser, why is Fraser Nelson's piece actually is about the most logical one to explain what's going on. It, it does seem to do that. And I, I, I do commend it to people because, as I say, Fraser does know what's going on and people do talk to him provided mm. he doesn't 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 say exactly who talked to him this is authoritative stuff and it it should it, it should get more essential but part of the deal with columns like phrases is, is that they don't they, they don't trumpet what they say on the front page they're there uh for the informed to read yes uh, but be informed yes read quite. Them, be an informed person don't be an uninformed one read no it. very much so speaking of uh, being informed what do you make of a man who says he's done nothing wrong but then refers himself to um, another man who's been set up by his boss to find out whether he has done anything wrong. Well, I think the police are always referring themselves, aren't they, <laughs> to, to, to the, the supposedly independent police complaints commissions. Well, this is uh, rushing off. Saying, oh, well, all right, we're reporting ourselves. Right. Uh, it, it does, of course, kick it in, into touch. But I think the problem with with the fishy Rishi is that his, his, he's, he hasn't done anything technically wrong, as far as I know. I mean, it may be something may, may, may turn out to be similar, but it, it hasn't been produced so far. What he's done wrong is, is misjudgment in political yeah. terms. It turned out not to be particularly politically astute. That's his, that's his fault. Yes. And now his, his enemies and rivals and those who th- think of him as a possible rival 
are unsurprisingly cashing in on this error and, and, and making hay. Uh, I'm, I'm sure he feels very, very unhappy and, and, and sad about this, but the truth is he should have known. Uh, the the non-dom tax issue has come up before. It's not it's it's not it's not a secret, uh, and it's uh, and people don't like it. And there are arguments for it. And even the Labour Party these days isn't prepared to condemn it outright. But if you're Chancellor of the Exchequer, and if you're levying taxes on people who have no escape from them at all, if, you know you if you and I we pay, pay PAYE on our on our on our incomes, that you pay that. Right. And that's what you have to do. You pay VAT, you pay fuel duty, you pay you pay all the other duties. You haven't got any choice. But the rich, uh, they have many ways to to lighten their tax burden. And if you're chancellor of the exchequer and you are imposing taxes on people, then you really can't, I think, in any way be connected with, mm. with anything, however legal it may be. Yes. Uh, which separates you from the people you're taxing. You have to be, I just think it's just a lack of political antennae. Yeah. I always thought that the fuss about Rishi Sunak was a bit overdone. Anyway. I did as well. I really uh, did. But there it is, and now it turns out that I was right again. Hey, <laughs> yeah, I think the one thing he did get wrong as well was thinking that he was more popular than Boris Johnson, which clearly Boris Johnson has never forgiven him for. When he, when, he was, when, when he was splurging money all over the place, I think he probably was more popular than Johnson wasn't he? But Johnson was telling everyone to stay at home and be miserable, and 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 Sunak was shoveling money into people's pockets. So no doubt he was popular during that phase. Yeah. But now he's moved on from that. Now he's shoveling money out of people's pockets. Yes. Very rapidly phased. Result misery. It's a Mr. Mike Corbett situation, isn't it? Everything is. Absolutely right. Peter, good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Pitt Hitchens uh, from the Mail on Sunday uh, talking about uh, a great many things. The world, uh, as you know it, can be completely and utterly um, circumferenced in half an hour. It's a beautiful thing. This is Talk Radio. Good afternoon and welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham. That is not Jim by the way. Uh, if any of you want to call up, please do try and refer to me by the correct name. I don't mind if you call me Jim. It's fine. You know, I mean, I like Jim White. He does a good show over the other side, but uh, he doesn't do Ukraine much, I have to tell you, if you're looking to get a conversation going with him. 0344 You might want to talk about Ronaldo, or he's in the tunnel. Or indeed, you might want to talk about the Grand National and the great victory uh, by the amateur jockey who's now uh, retired. Or you might even want to talk about the amazing comeback from uh, Rory McIlroy. Uh, and Tiger Woods kind of, you know, slightly limping off to the side and not making history. Might want to talk about any of that. He probably doesn't want to talk about Ukraine or NATO or the EU. Come to that. Kevin in Sheffield. Uh, anyway, coming up in this hour, we are going to be talking uh, to our next guest, Catherine Verbal Singh, headmistress, chair of the Social Mobility Commission. Because believe it or not, there's all kinds of stories today about kids around the way that mental health has been affected, not least because of the lockdown, not least because uh, of, of the schools being closed for long periods of time, not least because a lot of kids did exams which were then just kind of given a grade rather than awarded a grade because of what the child had written or said or done. Um, now we hear that there's a lot of teachers who are suffering under the yoke of a heavy workload and they plan to quit. Apparently as many as half of them plan to quit because they've got too much going on. Now, this is coming from the National Education Union. Now, Catherine may differ from me on this. She may have a different view. She may tell me that I'm wrong. But my general view of teaching is that I can't do it, so I would never say I could do that absolutely a piece of cake, not a problem. No, I wouldn't want to be a teacher. I'm sure it's quite stressful. I'm sure it's quite difficult talking to a lot of chippy kids uh, who are quite nasty to you uh, behind your back and sometimes to your face, particularly in secondary schools. However... I don't think their workload is terrible, do you? I mean, I know plenty of people that have got heavy workload, and I wouldn't put teachers amongst them, but we shall see. 0344 499 1000 is the number, of course. We've got much else to do. Rupert Bell's going to be joining us as well uh, to tell us about what's the latest from the royal family. And uh, the Queen, of course, talking about having COVID, saying it made her very tired. 
Well, I mean, amazing, isn't it? 95 years old, she gets COVID, deadly disease, and she didn't actually succumb to it, and she survived it, but she said it made her feel terribly tired. What an amazing woman she is. It is a platinum jubilee year. We'll be celebrating that, of course, throughout the year. Uh, but also he'll tell us about the Masters and about the Grand National as well. 0344 499 Keep your calls coming in as well. This is Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. And so, here we are. It's Monday. Uh, the sky is high. The uh, the cloud ceiling is high. I'm feeling quite good about the weather. It's a little bit on the chilly side, but this, of course, is a short week for some people because Good Friday uh, is upon us. It's a short week as well if you're a teacher because, generally speaking, you're on holiday. That's why there were so many people at Extinction Rebellion protests yesterday because an awful lot of them are teachers. Let's talk to Catherine Burble-Singh, Headmistress Chair of the Social Mobility Commission. She was here a few months ago. Uh, I found her incredibly interesting. Catherine, a very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for talking to me. Now, you may, if you wish, completely disregard everything I've said and rip it to shreds. I don't know. Um, You'll probably tell me that teachers work harder than anybody that you know. But, I mean, the workload in teaching can't be any worse than an awful lot of other jobs, can it? And I think it depends on what job you're comparing it to. And it also depends on the kind of teacher that you are. If you want to be a good or excellent teacher, you do have to put the hours in. as you just said, we're on holiday, but you can see I'm in my office. So there yeah, are so lots you're of an exceptional teacher, aren't you, Catherine? Well, well, so it depends on whether you want to be sort of good and great at what you do and how sort of committed you are. So uh, ordinary people sort of assume that teachers are in school from nine till three, which is just nonsense. Mm. Um, because there's so much that goes on in the background uh, in terms of marking and preparing lessons and meetings and so on. And all of that has to go on around teaching. Not only that. But teaching as an activity is exhausting. And I don't think people really understand that until they've done done it. Having 30 children in front of you and, and having all those plates spinning, it's just an exhausting uh, thing to do. Yeah. Um, but so is carrying groceries around in a van and climbing up and down people's stairs and delivering them to people. I mean, that's also pretty exhausting. Uh, well, I would just say try teaching and you'll see what I mean. Mm. It really is. Um, if you do it well, you see, this is the thing. There, there are some teachers who won't be doing it so well, and there are other teachers who are very committed who will be working 60, 70-hour weeks. I mm. kid you not. I mean, yeah. that, that would be pretty normal. Um, but and, there are some who would say, Catherine, that if you can't get done what you need to get done in a set period of time, then you're not very efficient. And if you can't work a 40-hour week, say, for example, and make that work for you and be effective and efficient and, and useful, then you're not doing it right. Uh, well, I think that would be the case for all the teachers in the country then. <laughs> you know, yeah, but you know what I mean? I mean, I could, I could say to you, I spend 15 hours a day preparing to do a radio show. And if that was true, that would make me an idiot because I don't need to spend 15 hours a day doing it in the same way that, you know, if you are an office worker and you're always working late because you can't get enough done during the day, then you need to be more efficient, don't you? So what you're saying is that there are some teachers who aren't as efficient as other teachers. And I would say I would agree with you. I would also argue that if much of your time as a teacher is being taken up by behavior incidents, running around doing all sorts of um, silly paperwork because you're having to justify things and it's not your fault, but you're having to put, put all this time into that stuff because 
the leadership in your school or the leadership generally in education is such that we don't believe in having strict schools. We don't believe in, in having high standards for uh, structures and order and discipline in schools. Teachers will end up spending a lot of their time on stuff that they shouldn't have to spend their time on, but they have to because the leaders in the system are not taking, I'm sorry, those are our pips here at school. Um, <laughs> the leaders are not taking into account uh, the fact that it's it's our job as leaders, I would say, yes. to make it so that teachers can do what you're saying. Mm. It should be possible. Um, but it isn't always possible. And that, I would say, is because of a, of a larger set of values that society has where we look down on leaders in education who want us to have order and structure and systems in schools that would make the lives of teachers easier. Yes. But when you say we look down on those people, I mean, who's we? Because I think most parents would want most parents would want a teacher to be turning up for a lesson um, fresh, you know, not dog tired, not exhausted, not at the end of their tether, not, you know, with frayed nerve endings so that they can, you know, jump off the, the handle at any given moment. You know, they want uh, the teachers to be well rested. They want them to be capable. They want them to be efficient, I would have thought. So I think the parents would like what, what you're suggesting. Yeah, I, I think that's a good point. And then you have to look to the unions, actually, who are the ones that are complaining about the workload. And then you need to ask, well, what are the things that increase a teacher's workload? And if the unions insist that there are no behavior problems in school, and if the unions insist that all the schools are good and outstanding and everything's fine and teachers don't have to worry about behavior, then I would say that they are actually undermining teachers mm. and their well-being because uh, behavior is a huge problem for teachers and the union should support um, reform when it comes to behavior systems in schools and, and holding us leaders actually to account mm. in making sure that we uh, provide an environment where teachers can can give all they've got and, and see impact of what they're giving. That can often be the most frustra frustrating thing for teachers. Yes. They put a lot in and they don't see the impact on the children because there's so much bureaucracy and there's so much poor behavior that gets in the way. Right. I mean, according to this National Education uh, Poll, National Education Union Poll, I should say, of 1,788 teachers, 52% of them said that their workload was either unmanageable or unmanageable most of the time. So, yeah. I mean, that seems easy enough to fix, doesn't it? Just reduce the workload then. Yeah. Well, the point is, is that what is that workload? What is it compri comprised of? I would say a lot of it has to do with poor behavior in schools. I would say that leaders in the end end up spending a lot of their time dealing with behavior issues instead of having the space, the mind space to be able to think, well, how do I reduce the workload? Because I've got the behavior sorted. And I know, for instance, I get a lot of flack for being strictest headmistress in Britain and all that kind of nonsense. Mm. Um, when actually I think that then enables, it frees me up to be able to concentrate on creating an environment that allows my teachers to teach right. and reduces their workload. Sure. But if we keep denying that there's a behavior problem, then leaders are unable to spend that time on reducing the workload. It's not as straightforward as, as, as you as you suggest. No, I'm sure it isn't. I mean, I have all sorts of quick fixes for almost anything in the world, including <laughs> the war in Ukraine. But, you know, um, if, if you can do it, then so can others, surely. Yeah, but you, I am hated in parts and there are people who get me very too. angry with me. And, and so you've got to have a really kind of, you've got to, got to have a bit of backbone to be able to, to take the hate. Uh, and really what, what I've always argued is that we ought to have a societal culture which allows head teachers to be able to do their jobs easily. 
it shouldn't be the case that we have to go against the grain in order to achieve what's right for the children mm. and what's right for the staff. And that is unfortunately the situation at the moment. Right. And so you have to be quite brave as a head teacher to go out there and do that. And of course, there are some heads who do that, but there are lots who don't necessarily. And then the work ends up piling on their teachers. Mm. And then you end up with the situation where the workload is too much. And, and I don't think teachers are exaggerating. I think they're absolutely correct in what they're saying. OK. And are these behavioural issues that you talk about coming from a particular place? I mean, are they... Uh, born out of people um, having children who don't think they can be disciplined anymore or they don't like being told off or they refuse to be put in detention? I mean, what's what's going on? Well, I mean, I find myself at conferences where I'm actually defending the use of detention. That our societal culture these days is even, is even at the point where we're saying it's mean to put a child in detention and we shouldn't do that. Um, and so when leadership teams are having to argue with parents or the media for doing pretty straightforward things like having a merit and demerit system and detention system, yeah. um, then your time is taken with that instead of thinking, how do I pull the resources that my teachers create so mm. that they can share them amongst each other instead of each teacher creating their own resources for their class? There are all sorts of ways in which you can reduce workload, but you've got to have the mind space to be able to do that. Yeah. And if too much time is spent fighting everyone on the outside, um, it, it reduces the effort and the time that you can spend uh, helping your teachers, supporting your teachers to get the best out of them. Sure. Now, the other thing that they complain about is that they're not paid well enough. Now, again, I think teachers are reasonably well paid these days, aren't they? Yeah, I think so. Although in London, for instance, there's a small, uh, you know, it's about £5,000 or so difference if you work in London. That doesn't necessarily make up for the the, the increase of, you know, the cost of living that takes place in London. So you'll find that lots of young teachers will start off in London and then leave London because they want to have families and they can't really afford to do that in London, for instance. That is a problem. Mm. So I think bigger cities, that can be an issue. I don't think <coughs> I don't think money is the reason why teachers leave teaching. There are two big reasons, workload and behavior. Yeah. And the two of them are interconnected. But what about I holidays? Mean, the holidays the holidays are not bad. Surely you would concede that teachers have better holidays than most people. Yes, but I would also argue that if you're a good or excellent teacher, you will spend a, you know some of that holiday working. You'll spend some of that holiday preparing lessons and marking books. Yeah, you and might so do. On. But they've got a lot more holiday than most people. They've got as many holidays as my kids have got, which they all constantly seem to be on holiday. Yeah, so you're looking at about 13 weeks. But the fact is... That's that a lot. Office... Nobody gets 13 weeks, do they, apart from anybody in education? Yes, but I would say that teachers don't either, like I'm in my office right now. Yeah. So, you know, it, it, it is the case. And if you're working a 60, 70 hour week normally, well, you deserve those holidays, don't you? But I say if, because it, is, it isn't the case that all teachers are doing that. Mm. Um, and the thing is, there are teachers who don't spend that much time. There are teachers who spend an enormous amount of time. Um, and it is true that uh, the culture that we have in society and in education generally what we are demanding from school leaders and teachers is enormous. The question is, how do we then address that? And we address that by getting the small things right in schools, like having excellent behavior systems, having detentions, um, uh, having families that support that kind of thing, and having a culture in the media where we're not constantly blaming schools. Anytime we find that children don't know something, the media says the schools should teach it, the schools should teach it. How about the media one day saying, Perhaps families need to take responsibility. Well, I do say that, actually. So I shall speak out I, alone. On the, like like, yes. like you say, there are some good teachers there, like me. There are some good broadcasters and some not so good. Yes. 
Yes, no, it's true. You do. But you are alternative, aren't you? Well, I mean, I'd like to think of myself as relatively mainstream, but if you say so, uh, if I've been called alternative by Catherine Burble Singh, I'm taking it uh, all the way. What about uh, this question, though, of uh, the union itself? Because the National Education Union spent an awful lot of time during the pandemic telling us that schools were dangerous places, that children would have to wear masks, that uh, if anybody was going to go back to school, they'd have to wear masks. Teachers were frightened. They didn't want to die. I mean, you know, the rhetoric was quite unbelievable, wasn't it? Yes. Yes. And and, and, and unforgivable, end, I think. Yeah. And doesn't help teacher workload. I mean, that's the thing that's interesting here mm. is that uh, on the one hand, the unions are saying workload is impossible. But then on the other hand, I'd say that it's the unions who are helping to make that workload impossible. Mm. <laughs> so, um uh, and, and similarly, you're talking here about the pandemic and so on. Um, but again, it's about leadership. If the leaders in the school are leading the school properly, the teachers then are able to deliver Zoom lessons through the pandemic, are able to to make the most of what, what we were allowed to do. Mm. Uh, we certainly did that at Michaela, and the children here had a great offer during during the pandemic. Right. As, be- the as best they could. But like you say, I mean, your school is a standout school, and, and if only many other schools were as good, then that would be probably a great contribution to the future of our uh, of our youth and as, as they move into adult life. But, you know, like I say, if you can do it, surely other places can do it. There must be something holding them back. The teaching union says it's the Department of Education. Is it? No. It is not the Department of Education. It's a general culture that we've got. One that you, where I say you have to be quite brave, you have to have a lot of backbone to stand up against the general culture and to say, I'm going to do things that are right. I'm going to set the tensions for my school. I'm going to have order. I'm going to have structure. I'm going to be called the strictest teacher in Britain and get laughed at. You know, the fact is that, and there are, there are head teachers who do that. Um, but that means that they inevitably are the exception rather than the rule. Mm. And, 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 and it's very hard for school leaders. We're asking the impossible of them. And then the teachers under that are then are, are flailing under, the, they're, they're faltering under this, 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 this system, which is demanding too much of them. And we don't really tell the truth about the poor behavior that takes place in schools and mm. the amount of time that it takes dealing with it. And is it worse now, do you think, the poor behavior? And why is there so much of it? Uh, I don't know if it's worse. I think it was wor- it's worse than it was, say, 50 years ago. Mm. Um, and I think that's because society has changed. I think that um, we are far more accepting of poor behavior and we are far more uh, critical of the tools that help teachers uh, keep good behavior. So uh, we don't even want to use the word punishment anymore. Mm. Even the word sanction is, is frowned upon. Nowadays, people might use correction as yeah. the word uh, or consequence even. Correction is criticized. So yeah. then they say, OK, well, what do you say exactly? Why are we tiptoeing around it? And the thing is, is that it's not just about the tensions. It's also about inspiring children and the way in which we teach. Teaching from the front of the class, leading the learning, being a, being an authority in the classroom is what teachers need to be. Nowadays, too often, parents and teachers are encouraged not to be the authority. Mm. They are considered to be, you're meant to be this facilitator of learning who's moving amongst the desks and keeping the children on task. That is not to be a leader. Mm. The children need leadership. Teachers need leadership. It's all about leadership in schools and doing what's difficult. And... Um, it shouldn't be so difficult. And I would say in 2022, in comparison to, say, 1952, culturally, it's a lot more difficult to do what used to be normal. You know, the, the traditional values of 1952 have almost disappeared. 
And it's only those of us who are sort of fighting and going against the grain who are managing to keep those traditional mm. values. And that makes it much more difficult for teachers in the classroom. Yeah, interesting. Well, fascinating stuff. Always good to talk to you, Catherine. Don't work too hard during the holidays. Take a, take a chill pill. Take some time off. Catherine Burble Singh, Headmistress, Chair of the Social Mobility Commission. Talking a great deal of common sense, but of course, if you're a parent, you'll know uh, that much of what Catherine was saying there doesn't apply to the, to the school where your kids go. doesn't apply uh, to some of the kids that you see horsing around uh, if you go and pick your children up from school. It doesn't apply to huge swathes of teenagers and sometimes even primary school kids who can misbehave, get put in a classroom and given a laptop all day uh, so they can play games because they're too disruptive to sit in a regular class. Well, that's not a punishment, is it? For heaven's sake. This is Talk Radio.